pull out your Bible this morning, open to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. If you don't own a Bible or you forgot your Bible, raise your hand. Ushers are coming down the aisle, and we would love to get you the, the Word of God in your hands. Here's the plan today. I'm going to preach a sermon, but I'm going to leave a little bit of time at the end to share some personal prayer requests for you because I'm going on sabbatical this week. I am, uh, this is, yeah, this is my last Sunday and then I'm, I'm out of here this week. So I'm, I'm going to share some prayer requests at the end. People have been asking how they can pray for me. But first, I want to preach a sermon and I'm just going to come out with it. The title, the, the topic of the sermon today, this is the money sermon, all right? It's the money sermon. No, I don't mean the sermon's going to be money, although that's possible. Today, we're finally going to get to the theme that we knew was coming in the book of Ecclesiastes as the preacher talks about all of these possible things that you could run after and pursue under the sun, and he declares all of them to be hevel it's only a matter of time before he gets to the topic of money. And here's what I've learned. In many years as a pastor, there's some challenges in the church when it comes to talking about money, all right? For some reason, the second we decide to talk about money, people get real nervous. Your shoulders get all tense, all right? And I've, I've learned there's a couple reasons for that. One of the reasons is people think they've heard this before. All right, they're like, I know, okay, there's no satisfaction in money or this is gonna be a blanket statement sort of against rich people, whatever. Here's what I want you to know. That's not this sermon. This sermon, you've never heard this sermon before, not because of me, but because our preacher, Solomon, is incredibly wise. He's very deep and he's gonna pull back the curtain and give us some insights into the reality of living in this world and how we relate to money. And the bottom line is, folks, money is a reality of our world. We all, if we want to follow in the way of Jesus, eventually we got to figure out, how can I have a healthy relationship with my money? Okay? Here's the second challenge. People think they're not rich. All right? No one even, especially rich people, especially rich people, think they're not rich. Am I right? I, I read this week a story of a, a woman who had taught in, the school, in a school district in Connecticut her whole life, and right before she was nearing her deathbed, she, she was really old, 87, and she went in to meet with a small law firm to figure out her estate, and they were asking her questions, and they were like, well, what do you think your estate is worth right now? And she said, I don't know, $40,000 or something like that, and they did a little research, and they told her, your estate is worth $7 million. She had no idea, all right? And the reality is a lot of people, even here in the United States, we don't realize how wealthy we actually are, folks. If you have regular supply of food, you have a safe place to sleep, and you have dependable transportation, you're in the top 15% of the wealthiest people in the world. If you make $50,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of income, income earners globally. And so in one sense, we're all rich. We're all wealthy financially. And here's the last challenge I've learned. People think there's going to be a second offering. They always think we're going to take another offering. We're not taking an offering, all right? The offering was before the sermon. That's the only one. Come back at the 11 if you want to give again. 
Here's the thing. What Solomon's going to show us this morning is in order to have a helpful conversation about money, the first thing we need to realize is we're not ultimately talking about money. That's the thing. If we're really going to figure out money, we have to first realize it's not about the money. Let me illustrate. Here's a painting, one of the most famous paintings by Renaissance artist Quentin Macis. This is called The Money Changer and His Wife. And in this painting, this was painted, um, Macis lived in Antwerp, which at the time was sort of the cultural business center of Northern Europe, and people came from all over the globe, so they needed money changers. And so here's the money changer with a scale, and he's probably got a coin that's come from another part of the world, and he's trying to assess the value so he can exchange it to the original owner with, with their current coins. And as he is weighing out this coin, you'll notice his wife, who appears to be reading a Bible or some kind of spiritual devotional, she's having her devotions, she finds that she is distracted and her eyes are being pulled away and the shimmer and the shine of the coin is drawing her away from her focus on God and her devotions. But what is it? What is it about money? It's benign. It's, just a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an object or bills. They're just pieces of paper. There's, there's, there's nothing about them that's inherently valuable. So what is it about Money that even, even for those of us who love Jesus, we can sometimes find we're drawn, our attention gets drawn away and we find ourselves fixating on these odd little objects. Is it the shine? Is it, is it the fact that they're made of precious materials? I don't think it has to do with any of that. I think if we're gonna be honest, we, we need to realize money is ultimately about provision. I want you to think about this with me for a minute. Money is about stability. For some of us, it's about luxury, but for the average person, most people, they just want a sense of security. My needs are going to be met. And money feels like the thing that I need to pursue in order to arrive at that place of safety and stability. And so what we're really talking about when we talk about money is Lord, where am I looking right now in faith for a sense of stability, for who will provide for me? In order to have a conversation about money, I need to realize I'm not really talking about a horizontal thing. I need to talk about a vertical relationship. This is about a vertical relationship. And my horizontal relationship with money in this life provides commentary to the degree of trust and faith that I have in my vertical relationship with my provider. It's easy to say, God, I trust you to be the provider. I trust you for provision. That's easy to say when I never actually have to lean on God to provide for me. Amen? And so what, what happens is God writes into creation this frustration. I'm going to read the text now, and what you're going to see is there's frustration in this world when it comes to money. Will you look at it with me? Ecclesiastes 5, I'm going to read verses 10 to 17. Notice all of the frustration in this text. Solomon says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. 
nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. That's our word hevel. It's this, you, it's just, it's like smoke. It looks like, it'll, it looks like there's substance, but when you try to grab it, there's nothing there. So it is with the person who loves money in this world. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. There's a little pick-me-up on Sunday morning. <laughs> Aren't you glad you came to church today? This is what's happening. Uh, this passage is so powerful. Folks, Solomon, our preacher, he's so wise. He says, here's how I can help you. I want to let you in on some reflections I've made about how frustrating money can be in this life. So what he does, he says, here's three frustrations that I've noticed. And I just want to walk through these briefly. And, and I think as I put these up, you're going to immediately go, oh, totally. Here's frustration number one. I'll have it on the screen. The more you have, the more you'll want. Isn't that how it is? The more you have, the more you'll want. And as you keep getting more and more, you never quite get to a place where you're like, okay, I've, I'm satisfied. Look at verse 10. Such an important verse. Solomon says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. There's something about the human heart, especially when it comes to money, there's no amount that will satisfy the craving if it's the thing that you love most in this world. And one of the things I'm gonna encourage you to do is to be as honest as you can. To what degree am I craving and questing after money right now in my life? Am I ever gonna to get to a place where I'm finally satisfied? Because the preacher says, it's never gonna happen. You're gonna set out on a quest to fill an unfillable void, an unquenchable thirst. Your appetite will always grow faster than the balance in your bank account. And you get to the next number, you add the next zero at the end, and, and then you'll realize, but I just need a little bit more. Right? You know, Rockefeller, at one point, he was, he was the richest man in the world. In 1913, he was worth $900 million. That's $66 billion in today's standards, taking in inflation. And one time he was asked by a reporter, the reporter said, which million that you have earned was the most satisfying? And you know what his answer was? The next one. The next one. You never get there. You're never satisfied. Notice this has nothing to do with how wealthy people are, okay? 
This is about what people love. I know people who are wealthy and they have no love for money. And I know people who are poor who love money desperately. You can love money and have a lot of it and you can love money and have little. But also I've never met very many Christians who would say, if only I could become rich, finally I would be happy. Most Christians recognize becoming wealthy, it's, I'm never gonna, it's never gonna make me happy. It's never gonna make me fulfilled. But we're not off the hook because here's the problem. What we do in the secret of our heart, myself included, all right, is we say to be truly happy, I don't need it all. I don't need to become incredibly wealthy. I just need a little bit more than what I have right now. Just a little bit more. But I never get there, right? I never get there. Here's how Alexander McLaren said it. This is this Scottish pastor that I've been geeking out on and he's such a wordsmith. He says, why is this? He says, this is so because the desire that's turned to outward wealth really needs something else. It has mistaken its object. Look at this sentence. It is so because all appetites fed on earthly things increase by gratification. You know what he's saying? He's saying that, ap- that appetite, if you try to fill it with earthly stuff, with every meal, your appetite will grow a little bit more. They demand ever larger gulps. The jaded palate needs stronger stimulants. The seasoned opiate eater has to increase his doses to produce the same effect. Isn't that amazing? What a quote. Don't you find that in your life? You, you, you finally arrive and you think, finally, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be content. I'm gonna be happy. I'm gonna trust that God's provided. And, but then once I'm here, now I want a little bit more. I came across a poem a couple years ago that was written by a 14-year-old kid named Jason Lehman. It's called Present Tense. I love this poem. It's so beautiful. 14 years old. Here's what he said. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. Colorful leaves, cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. Not really, Oregon, but it doesn't matter. Beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth, not really, in Oregon. And the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature, not really, and sophisticated. Here we go, I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, amen, amen. The youth and the free spirit, I was retired, but it was middle-aged I wanted. The presence of mind without limitations, my life was over, and I never got what I wanted. Jason, age 14, isn't that amazing? There was a time in my life where If I looked at where I am today and looked at everything I have, I would think, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Look how my my marriage, my children, where I live, my pets, minus the Labrador, but that's another sermon. And I would go, I would give anything to be there. And then, but but what happens is then I get there and I want a little bit more. And Solomon says, so frustrating. 
And God is the author of that frustration. He's got a really good reason for it. So the more you have, the more you want. But that's not all. Look at this. Here's, here's frustration number two. The more you have, the more you'll worry, right? Now look at verses 11 and 12. These two verses are, um, these are little Proverbs. And base, the, the, the basic point of the Proverbs is more money, more problems. No, notorious B.I.G. did not come up with that phrase. That was Solomon. More money, more problems. And what he does in each proverb, verse 11 is a proverb about this odd phenomenon that happens where as your, as your wealth or your money increases, suddenly there are more people around who, who are there to consume your wealth. You see that little phrase, verse 11, he says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage is it to the owner? He's describing this, I think Solomon probably experienced this as I grew in wealth. Suddenly there was a lot of people around and I had to take care of all of them, right? I remember a couple years ago, I was driving down the freeway and you know that massive Powerball poster right there near downtown? The one of the most brilliant ads, long lost relatives are standing by Powerball. There it is. And the IRS, right? And your own children. <laughs> so great. How many professional athletes came across tons of money and were bankrupt within a couple of years? ESPN did a story on Bernie Kosar where they, he, they showed how he, when he finished his career, he had an amazing career with the Cleveland Browns, super successful quarterback, finished his career, multimillionaire. Within several years, he declared bankruptcy. And it's, they, they say within two years, 75% of professional athletes have to declare bankruptcy. That's astounding. Bernie Kosar, right before he had to declare bankruptcy, he admitted, I, I was paying for 60 cell phone plans. How did that happen, right? And then verse 12, what happens in verse 12, look at the parable is, now he observes the difference in peaceful sleep between the laborer who has little and the wealthy person who has much. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer whether he eats little or much. Isn't that, isn't that interesting, but so true? It sounds so counterintuitive, but people who work really hard all day, especially with their hands, have you ever noticed? Even if they go to bed and they don't have a great meal, even if they go to bed on an empty stomach, they've worked so hard, they just, when their head hits the pillow, they're just out. And then Solomon contrasts that with People who have much, and isn't it true that when the more you have, the more burdened, the more, the more you worry, the more you think about what's happening in your life or your business or your bank account. How many of us have, been, have woken up at three in the morning worrying about what we have and we thought that by getting to what we finally have, it would give us peace of mind and we would sleep soundly. And Solomon says, this too is frustration. Oh, how fascinating. So the more you have, the more you'll want. The more you have, the more you'll worry. And then finally, number three, the more you have, the more you'll lose. And this is like the truly sober moment because now he's gonna talk about what you brought into this world is about what you're gonna take out, right? This is like a sobering truth and I, I'm not going to like release the, the pressure valve because we, we all know it's coming. 
That day is coming. But look what he does in, in, in verse 13. He describes a grievous evil and then he tells a parable. See it there? There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And to make matters worse, he's got a dependent. And now he's got nothing. We don't know the details. This is not a, probably a real story. It's just a parable. But, but notice in verse 13, he combines these two ideas of riches being kept by the owner to his hurt and a bad venture. Perhaps this was a gamble that, that someone took out of a desire to keep more to himself and probably even get more. Today, that might look like a risky stock investment or some super risky you do with your business. In Solomon's day, there were all kinds of things that could go wrong. People could raid your caravan or your ship could sink, bring in the goods, and you could lose it all in a moment. And Solomon calls this a grievous evil, which basically that, that word in the Hebrew means, it makes me sick to my stomach. Do you know what, folks? I've had that experience with friends that I've known who they got too far ahead. They, want, they were constantly pushing for more and suddenly they lost it all. And I don't just mean their money. And it breaks your heart. And what's amazing, look at verse 15. Solomon says, even if you could avoid all that, even if you, even if you could avoid the bad venture, the reality is you still have to die and leave it all behind. Look at that verse. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came. Moms, you know this. When that baby comes into your world and you hold that baby, what's the one thing they're not holding? M money to pay for the medical bills, right? Or like the key to a safety deposit box. There's nothing in their hands, all right? And there will be nothing in your hands when you go. You've heard the, you've heard the phrase, there's no trailer hitch on a hearse. Because whatever you got here, you're not taking it with you. You're not taking it with you. And Solomon says, frustrating? Absolutely. But when our, in our most sober moments, it gives us wisdom. Because we think, well, let me be really honest with myself right now. What am I questing after? What's the condition of my heart? And then what's the solution? Let me just read a few more verses of Ecclesiastes. This book is so wise. What he does next, now look at verse 18. Now Solomon's gonna say, here I think is the cure. Now this is gonna be a very surprising passage when I read it because it's gonna sound like Solomon's basically saying, just don't worry about it, just try to enjoy everything. It's like this carpe diem kind of a passage, but there's something else going on here. So I'm gonna read it slowly and I want you to pay really close attention. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God's given him, for this is his lot. Sounds strange. What, Solomon? Just, so after all that, we're just supposed to like eat and drink and enjoy? Now watch. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Did you notice? Suddenly, after all this discussion where God's not been mentioned one time, suddenly Solomon 
starts talking about God and a lot. And every time he talks about God, he talks about the same thing, the gift of God. This is a passage about God's sovereign providence. God is the provider. And what Solomon does in this, he says, not only has God given you all these things, but actually God gives the ability to enjoy them. This is a profound insight. Folks, God knows there's no such thing as happiness apart from him. He knows it. Even in a world filled with many beautiful things, if you spend your life going after those things and that's what you try to fill the void in your heart with, you'll end up holding smoke. And so Solomon says, the key is look to God as your provider, enjoy him, and then let all the things about your life bring you joy. And I know this is true because look what happens in the very first two verses of chapter six. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet, look at this, God does not give him power to enjoy them. In other words, God can give power to enjoy what you have and God could not give. But either way, the ability to enjoy, truly enjoy anything in this world is a gift from God. We look heavenward. You start there. Solomon's saying, stop trying to find enjoyment at a horizontal level. Start vertical and the horizontal will take care of itself. There's a tiny little detail in the painting and I want to show it to you. Remember the there's the money changer. There's his wife. They're distracted. They've looked away. But look down at the bottom in the little purple circle. Masis, this is a stroke of brilliance. He put into the painting a tiny little mirror. And if you zoom in, that mirror is showing a scene that's happening right outside the frame of the painting. So Bridget, can we go to the next frame? This is what's happening in the mirror. Do you see how the wood in the window frame is making a cross? And there's a man at the bottom reaching out for the cross. And art historians recognize this man. It's Quentin Massis himself. He painted himself into the painting just outside the frame. And what is he doing? He's saying, I know where real treasure is found. Real treasure. I think, we'll leave that painting up so you can see this, but I think he knew 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where Paul said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you might by his poverty become rich. Jesus became poor so that we would have all of the riches of God's glory. God is incredibly rich, folks. And true wealth and true fulfillment and true joy and true meaning in this world. I'm never going to find it out there. I, will, I could work my fingers to the bone. I could have sleepless nights and I'll never be content. But like Masis, if I reach out to Christ and his sacrificial death for me on the cross, I can find true riches. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to stop and I'm going to tell you a couple things about my sabbatical and then we're going to pray together. So 
I want to share, what I want to do for just a minute here is um, I want to tell you how you can pray for me. People have asked, we want to be able to pray for you. So I thought, well, I'm going to give you some very specific things here that you can pray for, all right? So I go on, my sabbatical starts Thursday morning. I've got a couple things I got to tie up around the church this week, and then I'm going to go. I have an elder meeting Wednesday night, and then when I walk out of that elder meeting, I'm going to wipe the dust off my feet, and baby, I am out of here. And, uh, and so Kathy and I are going to start with a little vacation. We're going to go out to Skamania for a night, and then we're going to go up to Spokane and stay on a river cabin. We'll have several days of vacation and then um, I'll tell you a little bit later about what I'm going to do near the end of my sabbatical. But here are some ways you can pray for me. Number one, will you please pray for deep spiritual rest? Deep spiritual rest. I don't feel tired physically. I don't feel tired emotionally. But I, I, I think I'm tired spiritually after just a long haul. And I, I want to rest. I was thinking this week about Jesus in John 15 saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. If anyone abides in me, he'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And I just want to abide in Jesus. And I just want to rest. At the end of my sabbatical, from, from the middle of July until the early part of August, for about 20 days, I'm going to go up to Canada. I've rented a room at Regent College, and I'm going to basically be alone in solitude for 20 days. And some of you are thinking, buddy, you're an extrovert. You're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to like go crazy like Castaway Tom Hanks. You're going to start talking to a volleyball or something. But that's not what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen? I am going to enjoy my relationship with Jesus. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read. I'm going to sleep. I've got access to the, one of the largest theological libraries in Canada. I'm just gonna hang out in the library. I'm gonna nerd out. It's gonna be amazing. Pray for me. The second prayer request, pray for enjoyment. Pray that I would come home more in love with Jesus than ever before. Number three, I thought about not sharing this one, I, but my wife really encouraged me to share this with you. Would you please pray for healing in my life? Here's what I mean. I am becoming more and more aware as we've come out of the last four or five years, everything that happened, I have some wounds. I have some heart wounds that I'm carrying around. I feel like my analogy is, and this is not just true of me, but all of our pastors, we kind of felt like we were soldiers and we were just trying to take the beach. We were just trying to get the church through everything that was going on. And I can imagine a soldier who's got his, he's got his eyes fixed on the beach and he's taken hits, but he can't even focus on that because he's just got to complete the mission. And I think I took some hits. Some of them I've dealt with. Some of them I haven't totally dealt with. But I know they're there. It's like the check engine light that comes on on the dashboard. I've got some check engine lights that have come on and it's time for me with enough space to kind of peel back the layers, pull off the bandages and, and, and heal from some of that stuff. Pray for me. Thank you. And then finally, pray for our church. Pray for fruit. The church is in good hands, River West. Really good hands. We have an incredible pastoral team. Christopher, Marianne, Mike, Eric, Derek, Tiffany. What a team we have. The church is in good hands. 
our elders, our staff, I believe we're gonna have one of the most fruitful summers in, this, in the history of River West Church. Amen? Would you pray for that? Would you be a part of that? Thank you, I'll see you in August. August, I'm gonna, I'll be back on August 6th. I'll see you then, all right? Hopefully I'll look really like, maybe I'll have a halo or maybe I'll be, maybe I'll levitate in. No, that's not gonna happen. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this moment. Forgive us, Father, for sitting through a worship service and not remembering that we're in the presence of the living God. We did not just read the Bible. The Bible read us. That's what we need. We don't come to your word, Lord, to critique it. We come to your word to be critiqued by it. Whatever the topic, even the topic of money. And so, Lord, would you move now by your spirit, speak to us as we head to the table, remind us where treasure is really found. A relationship with the God of the universe through the sacrificial loving death of the Son of God and his resurrection from the dead. And so like Messias, we just reach out this morning for Christ and the power of the cross. How I pray, Lord, I know, Father, there are some this morning who have not turned to Christ in a moment of faith. If that's you, this is your moment. So simple, just as you're sitting there in this moment with your eyes closed, your head bowed, just pray, Lord, I need Jesus. I need his death for my sins and I need his resurrection so that I can have new life. I need new life, God, in Christ. I believe, I repent of my sin and I believe in Christ. Just pray that prayer this morning and then go to the table and eat your first true spiritual meal. And so we love you, Father, and we pray all these things together in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.